0: Sound design.
1: When you design for subwoofers, stereo design, make sure left goes to the left and right to the right. Sound design.
0: (laughs) Sound design lives produced independently by me, Nathan Lively in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the head of engineering support at Nexo, Francois Defarge. Francois, welcome to Sound Design Live.
1: Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me.
0: So Francois, I definitely want to talk to you today about Nexo speakers, system design, calibration. Um, But before we dive into that, um, I'm just curious about what kind of music you like. So when you get a system set up, what are maybe one or two of the first tracks you might like to play through it just to get a feel for what it sounds like?
1: These are slightly two different questions, if I may, Nathan. I got into that music, uh, I got into that industry uh, because of music. And not as a musician, but because of a real passion for uh, Brazilian music. I grew up uh, in Brazil, and uh, it is a country where people are extremely strongly connected, you know, to that culture, to that music. And this is what, you know, when I was 15, I believe, you know, I decided that this is where I wanted to uh, act and work. But anyway, then the second question is, you know, what are the tracks I use? I would mention two tracks, probably. I love Aram Neville. You know, everybody plays the fool. And that's a track I've been listening for many years. I know exactly how it sounds. It's it has nice dynamic percussion, and that's the one I systematically use to check a system. Then um, I use some uh, ladies piece, uh, Black Mambazo, when I want to listen to the vocals. I
0: love, I love. I love. It hangs above my altar like they hung in from the cross. I keep on in my wallet.
1: I've been touring with uh, Salif Keita, so there are a couple of trucks there that I use also quite a lot. <music>
0: So Francois, how did you get your first job in audio? Like what what was your first paying gig?
1: My first gig was, if I remember well, this is uh, probably 86. It is a festival in a theater in Paris with many bands, which at that time, some of them were famous. Some others were not that famous, but became very famous afterwards. It was a two days festival. And the first day I watched... The engineer doing the monitors doing the job, and I got the picture really quickly of how it worked. And the second day, I did it myself. And oh, wow. uh, but, but it was uh, ten hours or twelve hours in a row, you know, to start at like four in the afternoon and finish at four in the morning. So it oh, was quite, quite, quite intense. But anyway, I was uh, very, very proud because uh, I think there were very few if non feedback. So uh, <laughs> I was, I was, uh, so this is my. I believe my very, very first uh, uh, job.
0: Wow, that's cool. And how did you get that job?
1: I got that job through friends. You know, it's always the same story. It's it's connection opportunities. So I was in contact with the rental company who was actually joining the job and uh, they solicited me to, they trust me, which was really nice from them. Um, The monitor engineer who trained me, in fact, was coming from the same school. You know, I had done a couple of years before. So we were, of course, connected.
0: So you've had a bunch of jobs since then, and your current job is now at Nexo. Could you talk about how you started working for Nexo? How did you get that job?
1: You know, this is one of the beauty, I think, of our life and industry, is that we have the ability to have not only one life, but to have multiple lives. And uh, so I went through that. As I mentioned, I worked as an engineer, then I toured with artists and so on. And at the same time, as I was uh, freelancing, the best university in France for acoustics was evening classes it was in Paris, it's called the French Conservatory. So I took a master degree in acoustics at the same time I was freelancing, which is really nice because it's, uh, uh, apologies if I make a short story long, but it was very nice because it's the thing of learning you know, while practicing and learning the academic background at the same time. And there's nothing richer, I think, nothing more efficient to really get the proper understanding, you know, listening and looking at the math books or the physics books at the same time. But anyway, so I progressively I graduated with a master's degree and my research work for my master degree was on, you know, speaker arrays and that was at Nexo. I spent six months at Nexo uh, doing that research work. Uh, this is when uh, Eric Vansno, the founder of Nexo, solicitated me to do the design for the Soccer World Cup stadium that was opened in ninety-seven. And um, the project I did, the Alpha at that time, uh, we won the tender, we won the project. So uh, I got really um, very strongly involved with Nexo. But at that time, I was almost no longer a sound engineering. I was already working as a consultant. And then uh, later on, so as a consultant, you see the multiple lives. As a consultant, I also managed a, a couple of important events or projects, one of them being the celebration of year 2000 in Paris. And shortly after that, I had an idea for a waveguide that would allow us to do isophase wavefronts. You cannot design an array, you cannot design a product that works properly all the way you know, to 20K if you don't have the proper HF device uh, mm-hmm. to do that. And I had the idea. I brought the idea to Nexo, to Eric, and started developing you know, very first products with that uh, idea. And at some point, I got so involved with Nexo uh, that I could no longer be you know, an independent consultant. There was a potentially uh, ethical conflicts. So I stopped working as a consultant and worked started uh, as an R&D engineer at Nexo in 2003. And I think in 2005, I was appointed R&D director, and I've been doing that for 10 years. So this is more than a full cycle, you know, of a whole range of products. Sure. And in 2015, I passed R&D. Joseph Carcopino, um, uh, Nexo R&D director today, took over. And we created uh, uh, these new departments. You know, being in the company, even though it's for long, is also to be capable to innovate and to bring initiatives to improve um, uh, the way we work. And we had to structure the service, the the support part of Nexo, which was not properly structured in 2015. So we decided to create this engineering support department, which is 100% focused on customers. Customers that is not only uh, our distributors, when I'm saying customers is and users, consultants, all the people who are actually dealing with natural products are our customers. This is the sense I give to it. So we're doing that now for five years. It's a team of uh, 10 people worldwide. Uh, I'm heading uh, uh, that team. I'm very, very happy, to be honest. Very happy because uh, it's extremely good people. It's, it's a Formula One team. Lots of enthusiasm, lots of passion. It's also a way for me to, after 10 years at R&D, to... We connect very strongly with the outside world. I love traveling. I'm a bit frustrated these days, obviously, but anyway, mm-hmm. soon we will recover. I love traveling. I love, one of the reasons I love sound, I love music, is because of not only the art and the music, but is also because of the opportunities to meet people, to meet great artists, to meet great engineers, to meet really, you know, something which is very, very specific to our industry. I feel, I've feel i been in that industry for all my life and I feel very comfortable into it.
0: Well, Francois, having talked to a lot of sound engineers and audio people over the years, I've discovered that through many people's careers, there's often a moment where they make a decision to go in one direction or go in some different direction. And they just kind of put their foot down and say, okay, I'm going to stop doing this thing and do this other thing now or something similar. So I'm wondering if you could maybe looking back on your career so far, what do you think is one of the best decisions you've made to get more of the work that you really
1: love? I think the best decision I made, and uh, probably this is uh, thanks to my education, thanks to my parents, they were both teachers, was to study as much as I possible, as much as I could. So uh, I studied a bachelor degree first. Then, as I mentioned, I study acoustic classes, you know, evening classes to get a master's degree. I did an executive MBA you know, not a long time ago. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> being fifty there 's always to learn, and I think that for me i 'm not saying this is a general statement, but being capable to study throughout my life in reality gave me a, a fantastic degree of freedom in going one direction or another. Now, make it clear, Nathan to be honest i 'm not sure how much I have decided. I believe with my studies and maybe with you know some opening to the world, I made things possible to happen and and they happened. But I did not necessarily decide, you know. Things happening is meeting someone at some moment, you know, and who's going to take you to a project. And that project can change your life. And you have not decided for that. However, you made it possible to happen. Yeah. So this is this is the way I see it. And uh, and you see today, Nexo is part of Yamaha Group. You can see it's a land of opportunities, of ideas, of, uh, again, but, uh, you know, you must, uh, you must be humble, uh, I believe, and, and consider that, uh, you know, you don't have full control over what you're doing. Then there are some external factors, should I say, or maybe some influential factors. A very clear influential factor is personal life. At the time you have kids, you know, and you're on the road all the time, if you have the chance, the opportunity to step down a little bit to be home with your kids, you know, that changes a little bit your way of seeing things. You're not any longer a single man who is on the bus all the time touring. You know, you're a dad, uh, you, have a, you have a wife, you have kids, and you want to be there for them. So that influences, uh, you know, you have all these exogenous factors. I'm not so sure you say that in English, but you have these factors that eventually influence which way you're going to look at.
0: Um. So Francois, you work in support. You've been working in audio and with Nexo even now for a long time. You talk to a lot of people about... Uh, systems they're setting up. You talk to a lot of people about problems that they're having. So I'm curious, what are some of the most common questions that you hear from people? What do you think some of the biggest mistakes are that people are making who are maybe using Nexo products for the first time and they're setting up their sound systems? I'm just assuming that over the years, you kind of get the same questions over and over again coming through to you, or people are sending you their system designs and you're like, no, people do this all the time. You've got the speaker pointed backwards. Or I don't know if there's something that obvious, but does something come to mind when I say uh, maybe biggest mistakes or common questions?
1: There are trends for mistakes. Uh, The trends for mistakes today are are essentially on the network part. Uh, (laughs) It's a, a, a latency that is set differently you know, on two electronic devices, which are feeding the same clusters, uh, that's a, a dramatic mistake. Uh, so, this is the things that we have to look at today. Now, I should look at the acoustic parts. Uh, we should consider, uh, and we do training for that, that, uh, you know, before starting anything, implementing, designing, whatever, you know, checking, being capable to properly check a system is fundamental. And look at all aspects, it's like, you know, it's like running a plane. And you go through the checklist and you make sure that everything is correct before the plane actually takes off Uh, that's exactly the same in audio but anyway the level of the industry since i started working uh, back in 86 has really raised a lot and it became very very professional maybe it's difficult to say one thing i don't like when i see pictures that i really don't like is when i see um, left and right stage subwoofers being just arrayed flats to the audience You know, because from the picture, you know that this is not going to work. So that's something I see quite commonly. It's our job to train, educate people so that they don't do that, to explain them why. But uh, again, the overall level has really increased a lot. And one of the reasons is that because manufacturers, not only Nexo, I think all the major manufacturers have realized long time ago in reality that it's not only about the product, it's the way it is implemented. So some mistakes we would, see, we would see of implementation some years ago, we don't see any longer today. And this is probably because of the manufacturers being very, very much involved in training.
0: So when I send you my picture of my design and it has left-right subs, left-right sub configuration, what's wrong with that? What do, you, what do you think of in your mind? Like, oh, I'm not going to get the result that I want, or what's the problem with that?
1: The problem with that is that uh, when you do stereo design in sub, uh, as uh, uh, probably uh, uh, all the experienced engineers know, you create interference pattern left to right, and these lead to power haly and they lead to they, they lead to very inconsistent low frequency response. That was eventually accepted twenty years ago, but it's not accepted any longer. And uh, I have just one sentence if I see a design like this, and this is a. Uh, Uh, In fact, I conducted this morning a webinar session on subwoofers (laughs) and it's a two hour session and it's a two hour session where I hope that people remember one thing, one sentence is when you design for subwoofers, stereo design, make sure left goes to the left and right to the right because all the problems are because of left going to the right and right going to the left.
0: So, when you recommend that to people, what directional arrays are you recommending? Or I think also Nexo has some single unit directional subwoofers, right?
1: Correct. It's it's fairly if you if you have one unit per side, of course, and it's omni, there's not much you can do <laughs> clearly. But uh, if you have a, a, a cardioid subwoofer, then what you do is you tilt that single cardioid subwoofer yes, to thirty degrees, forty five degrees outwards. That's if you have one box only. Now, if you have an array, you can also construct some level of directivity by the construction of the array itself. So let's say you have four subwoofers or six subwoofers per side. You're going to create an array of subwoofers which can be steered electronically or can be arced geometrically. Yes. And again, you're going to send it to the outside. This is, that problem is specific to stereo design, to make it clear.
0: Um, yes. So, just to wrap up this conversation about subwoofers, going back to when I send you a picture of my design and you say, "Oh no, Nathan's doing a left-right uncoupled. It's going to create these interference patterns." What would you rather I did instead of this left-right uncoupled design?
1: I will explore. It's a very, it's a very difficult subject. Huh? Uh, it's a very difficult subject because there is an unknown part in low frequency, and that unknown part is the room. You don't know, in fact, and you cannot model and you cannot anticipate how a room is going to behave at 30 or 40 Hertz. Okay. So probably the best advice I'm going to give you, uh, Nathan, at the time you submit your design is look, these are two or three options, two or three possibilities. We don't know how the room is going to react. So keep these two or three options open. Okay. And then. You go on site, when you go on site, and eventually we go together on site, then we're going to test these options. We're going to A, B them, right? It's going to take two, three hours, not more, but we're going to A, B them just before it is commissioned. We have to, we have to look at the time frame, you know, where we can do that. And we're going to test and we're going to listen to music. We're going to experiment. We're going to play Aronne Neville. Uh, you know, uh, everybody plays the fool. Uh, not measurements, uh, just listening. And uh, measurement can help, of course, but uh, by the end um, it 's about how it sounds really how it's how the phase is coherent from the subs to the main p a um, you know it 's all these aspects that make it such music is only transients, and we want full respect of the transients so this is this would be my recommendation. Keep two three options open, test them, go and listen to them, and then you make your decision it 's very again. We can really nicely predict what occurs in the mid-high frequencies. It's impossible to predict what is going to occur at 30 Hertz.
0: Cool, so let's move on to talking about high frequencies. I've always been confused by asymmetrical horns. I remember the first time I had to Ah. work with a box, I was like, wait, isn't this upside down? This looks upside down. And I had to read the manual like five times because I was so confused. So why do asymmetrical horns look upside down? It looks like the bottom part is narrow, where you have wide coverage, and the top part is wide, where you have narrow coverage. So why, why does it look like that, And or maybe I'm looking at it wrong?
1: No, no, you're looking at it, uh, that is, uh, acknowledge it is a little bit uh, counterintuitive. But when you design a horn, yes, what governs the directivity is the expansion of the horn, right? So a horn is made of a slot, okay, that's the initial part, and then the second part is the expansion. All right? So if on an asymmetrical horn, right, if you want to have a fast expansion, you're going to extend the throat. so it's going to give a narrow part and with it's called a diffraction slot in reality. And with the fast expansion, you're going to achieve a very wide directivity. So where the throat is narrow, this is where you have the wider directivity. Because it's faster, okay. Because the expansion is faster afterwards, yes. And if you go on the upper part of the horn, you can see there is almost no throat. It's immediately the expansion, yes? But the expansion is not as fast as it is on the bottom part of the horn. So it means that, in fact, we have a narrow coverage at the top. Oh,
0: wow, Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have to put a, uh, you know, never mind. we have to put arrows on the horns so that people yes. don't confuse. <laughs> meant, yeah. There's
0: no, there were no labels on this horn. And I've noticed, uh, I, I haven't used the Nexo speaker in a while, but I was looking at some on your website and it looks like now you actually write numbers on there. So at the bottom, it says like 60. And at the correct. top it says a hundred or, you know, whatever the numbers are. Correct, That's so correct. helpful.
1: <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, if, if I may, a smaller, the smaller source, the more omnidirectional it is. So if you look at the bottom part of the horn, it's very small. The slot is like this. And as you go upwards, yeah, it seems that the horn is larger and larger.
0: Um, Francois, so uh, you've done all this great stuff in your career already, and I'm sure not everything has always gone perfectly for you. So I was wondering if maybe you could tell us about the biggest or most painful mistake you've made on the job um, and what happened afterwards.
1: That's I remember, and it's it's a it's, it is a mistake, but it's also um, something which is uh, you know uh, teaches a lot. Um, it's uh, back in 1997. We had the opening ceremony of the Stade de France, which is a project over which we've been working for more than one year. And so this is the day where actually uh, the French president is coming into the stadium you know, to say, uh, "I declare the stadium open." And the president was just below, you know, two clusters. So comes the television, television comes in, I had microphones, goosenecks microphones coming, you know, kind of close. And the television decides that they're going to film Jacques Chirac, the French president, from kind of far, and they don't want to see any microphone inside the image. Mm. So suddenly the microphones were like uh, probably two meters away from him, right, with the clusters, you know, delivering all the sound at the top. And anyway, so I prepare a special uh, setup so that the speakers who are pointing to the presidents right, are lowered by 6 or 10 dB at the time he's going to, you know, show that sentence tell that sentence. And uh, anyway, so ceremony goes on. It's Again, it was, uh, you know, the conclusion of uh, years of efforts. The installation sounded really fantastic. Okay. And uh, so there comes the moment where the president uh, knows, uh, you know, I declare, so I switch, I go. It was VCA's at that time. I prepared a special program, VCA, boom shack talking, 6 dB, 10 dB down on the speakers. And then it carries on and it's great. And it's fantastic, uh, you know, and everybody. At the end, it's around 11, end of the game, midnight. We go to bars, we have drinks up to two, three, four in the morning, you know, celebrating.
0: (laughs) Wait, wait, that sounds uh, like everything went great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, everything went great. And then the day after, I wake up like at eight o'clock and, uh, you know, I go in a cafe in Paris to have my cafe. Uh, I buy the newspapers. And I opened the newspapers at the bar, and I see, uh, I see uh, everything went okay, uh, but uh, major problems with sound. What? Ah, what? <laughs> what? And in fact, what occurred, so, you know, in the national news, uh, national newspapers, uh, and in fact, the same speakers that were covering the president were also covering the press stands. So, uh, the so the press, so the press thought talking. there was no sound. It, yeah, so they, wow. lost all the, they lost the speech from Chirac, and everybody understood perfectly clearly all over the stadium. Uh, but, so many of the journalists that were not in the Press Tribune said, wow, you know, this is like home theater sound, it's fantastic, and so on and so on. But anyway, the, the journalists that were in the Press Tribune could not hear Chirac at the time he was, could not hear the president at the time he was talking. And I only discovered that the day after. And so what is the lesson there? Because of course, in all mistakes, there are lessons to take, but, um, it's that, uh, you know, we must, uh, we must uh, be very strong about our position. You know, our position is delivering good sound to the entire audience. This was 80,000 people and we cannot compromise on that. Sure. So, yeah. Is there anything had- you could have done differently? I don't, I don't know. I should have, uh, I should have probably resisted uh, in a stronger way to the French television, which is difficult, eh, because uh, the event is broadcasted to millions of people. So television has a very strong, you know, position there. But uh, I probably should have taken a stronger position, or at least warn in advance on what that was going to happen. Right, right, right. Yeah. So you see, it's a uh, and usually when you warn in advance and you say, "Look, you want me to do that? I'm going to do it, but this is what's going to happen." Yep. Usually people step back. Okay. Uh, Sure. Yeah. Anyway, so this is one among many, probably. Yeah. But d- but sure. this one. <laughs> oh, no, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. This oh, one was man. popular. Newspaper headlines. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh newspaper my God. headlines, yes.
0: <laughs> um, so, Francois, some people sent in some questions on Facebook, and sure we'll see time. if you have anything to say about them. So, Joao Lopez writes, just tell him, well, first just some gratitude, just tell him that the N45 is one of the best wedges I've ever worked with.
1: Um, okay. That's that. you, you, can, you can reply to, uh, to him that uh, it's uh, probably one of the products I'm the most proud of when I managed R&D.
0: Jason Rabohan says, Why does Nexo opt for a single LF driver in their GOM series while the rest of the major manufacturers opt for two? What are the benefits and what are the trade-offs?
1: The trade-offs are very few, if you want my opinion. Symmetry, I don't think, you know, a perfectly symmetrical cabinet is uh, a reality art and symmetry don't go along very well, I believe. But anyway, the drawbacks on symmetrical uh, architecture is that usually the speakers which are on the outside are going to narrow in coverage before the crossover points for the HF. So it's very difficult to achieve a constant coverage. You usually have a coverage which narrows up to the crossover point, you know, frequency, and then eventually will double at the time you move to the HF. The reason, the reason for Nexo going on this asymmetrical architecture. Let's let's make it very simple. Let's compare, for example, a double eight with a single twelve, yes, or a double six with a single ten. The difference is almost an octave in the low frequency range. Which means that a, a 10 inch, the 10 inch will extend down to 60 hertz. A 10 inch you know, uh, uh, two way enclosure will extend down to uh, 60 hertz, while a double six will only start at 120 hertz. Okay. So low frequency extension is really what makes the difference between our asymmetrical architectures with bigger woofer diameter as opposed to symmetrical architecture with smaller diameters. And also, uh, we don't face these coverage pattern, uh, you know, uh, problems. Uh, we have a, a little bit of narrowing, but we have very steep slopes at crossover points. So there is a little bit of narrowing just around the crossover, but we don't have this rupture of coverage when we move from you know LF to HF. Okay. So it's uh, it's it's we want when we're flying line arrays, you know, the more LF energy we can put at the top, the better.
0: Uh, so Devin Sheets sends in a couple of questions. They're sort of like prompts and specific questions, but he says, I'd be interested in hearing him talk about the physics behind the latest port designs in the STM and GEO series. The design involves a slit in the port, which seems to change the phase relationship of the harmonics so that there is linearity throughout the frequency ranges that are normally affected by port resonances. Do you know what he is talking about?
1: Oh, yes, I do know. This okay. is one of the most valuable patents uh, that we have at Nexo. It is a patent that was filed by uh, one of the engineers I was managing, uh, Mathias Larieu, uh, at that time. Uh, the problem all vents have been facing for decades is uh, everybody intuitively assumes that a vent in enclosure has you know, the tuning frequency coming out of the vent, and only that. So let's say you have a, a box is tuned at 50 hertz. And so it will radiate 50 Hertz energy from the vents. And after that, only the drivers are going to radiate. But this is not the reality. The reality is that uh, an enclosure, a enclosure is a, it's called a Helmholtz resonator. And so not only the 50 Hertz is, is radiated, but also the 100 Hertz and also the 150 and etc., cetera, et cetera. And these harmonics... First harmonic is out of phase, second harmonic is in phase, third harmonic is out of phase. So they damage the on-axis response and they damage the coverage dramatically, dramatically. So there's been many patents that have been filed in the past. One of them, I believe, has very small resonators like bubbles, you know, and holes on top of the vent to try to absorb these harmonics. But this is so expensive, almost unrealistic to manufacture. And Matthias had that great idea. Matthias, uh, he was extremely knowledgeable reading many articles, including from the 50s, you know, and he found in a, a paper from the 50s that idea of a slot. It was not at that time applied to events. It was applied to a baffle. But anyway, we immediately, when he had this idea, we immediately experimented because we were stuck in the development of STM. The coverage of STM was so bad that no way we could release that product. And so uh, we... we Matthias realized that by putting a slot like this, which is a quarter of the wavelength of the first harmonic we want to absorb, Yes, then we could damp not only the first harmonic, but all the consequent ones. And it's instantaneously, while the response was dropping on axis, you know, when we had these harmonics, where the coverage was widening and narrowing and widening and narrowing, having that, that slot into the vent immediately smoothed everything out. So since that, it's a patent that we filed, I believe, in 2012. And since then, we applied to all the, all the products that have been coming out of Nexo so, have uh, been using these, uh, these uh, slots from now. But also, interestingly, on a more uh, day-to-day approach, it means that our job is to discover problems and to solve them. Right? Innovating is about discovering. If you don't see the problem, there's no way you're going to progress. So you have to identify the problem, and then you're challenged, and then you have to solve it. And that occurs systematically, I would say, in all products development. There is always something you did not anticipate that is going to come in. (laughs) And then you'll have to struggle, you'll have to fight, uh, you'll have to win, and then you've progressed. Great.
0: Devin has one more question. He says, how valuable does he think the cardioid low-mid functionality is in the market? They haven't been pushing cardioid tops as much, but still offer cardioid modes for the subs.
1: What he's saying is, uh, do we consider implementing cardioid feature on the tops or not? Okay. And in reality, in reality, uh, we, um, Devin, uh, uh, hello Devin, and uh, Devin know Nexo like so for a long time. In fact, we pioneered cardioid line arrays, together with Myersound. Sound. I think Meyer Sound was first with the M3D, uh, that was a cardioid main array. And we came with GOT in 2003. GOT had uh, rear drivers and front drivers, 8 inches. So not only the subwoofers were cardioid, but the main PA was also uh, cardioid. And then we came with GOD, which had speakers 8 inches on the side, 12 at the front, that was in 2006. And uh, true, since then, especially on STM, we gave up that feature of uh, cardio And this was a, a difficult decision to take, but uh, we had good reasons to make that decision. And uh, the, reason to make that, the reason for that is very simple, is that in reality, when you have an array, when you have a box array like STM or whatever, there is the diffraction of the cabinets, which generates some attenuation. To make it simple, it means that from 80 Hertz all the way to 200 Hertz, Yes, the natural diffraction of the box itself is going to lead to six to ten dB attenuation from to back. So, if you put rear speakers there, not only you're increasing the weight and the costs of the cabinets because of putting and the amplification cost also, but you're only going to gain three or four dB attenuation, not more, because there is already the diffraction effect of the cabinets, right? So, our belief—not saying right or wrong—I'm just saying our belief is that the user benefit is not that much. The second reason also is that we always curve our arrays. So the attenuation zone of the array at the back is somewhere in the air and we don't really care because what we do care is on stage. Mm-hmm. So these are the reasons. When it goes to a subwoofer, it's very different because an only subwoofer, when you're in the range of 20 to 80 cycles, 20 to 80 hertz, the subwoofer has at the maximum 1, 2, 3 dB attenuation. So by going cardioid, you go minus 12, and that's a big gap, you see? So as you go up in frequency, I think cardioid is less and less needed in reality.
0: So Francois, what's in your work bag? What do you take with you when you go to do a site visit or to, to help someone with an installation? Are there like one or two tools that you bring with you that you think are unique or interesting?
1: Music. Music. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> that's the first thing I carry, of course mm-hmm. and then I have like everybody, I have my toolbox you know with a, a I have a range finder, a Drupal 360, which allows me to confirm the angles, the distances and everything. I have a you know a dPA microphone for measurements. I have a, a very nice um, a box from a French manufacturer which is called a Bub. It's a mic preamp of very high quality which operates both analog in out and dante also in-out, so it's very convenient. Oh, I can cool. mix channels, you know. Uh, and then um, uh, I also have a set of electrosonic, uh, you know, wireless uh, devices. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a very conventional toolkit. And what, are you,
0: what software are you using or hardware to do measurements with?
1: A laptop, uh, like everybody is smart. Uh, we, also, we also use SysTune, uh, uh, so we have uh, you know, the standard software. I like to have smart because everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. So at the time you're dealing with an engineer, you're talking with him, you have the smart and everybody knows it, so you can share the reading and you can share eventually the measurements and so on and so the smart is is fantastic Uh, i think it's really uh, and uh, people from rationale acoustics make a very nice evolution of smarts you know years after years with additional features the measurements they have now on the reverberation time and intelligibility are are great you know because measurement is not only about fine-tuning a measurement is also about uh, verifying that you're in compliance with the specifications Mm -hmm. Uh, so some kind of contractual measurements Cool. So I carry that. And we have also, uh, because we need to have that, but I don't take it systematically outside, we have a BMK uh, sound level meter that is calibrated every year, class one calibrated every year, because uh, if you owe 105, you owe 105, and you must have the tool that tells precisely that you actually have it. We also have NCI for speech intelligibility. NTI is probably, uh, together with Smart, you know, one of the, the really nice tools. The benefit of, of NTI is that you can walk around the stadium and arena, make your measurements, and you don't need any connections. You can do all the recordings uh, while you're playing the, uh, the sound in the system.
0: Um, Francois, are there any? is there one book that you can think of that has been really helpful to you?
1: I think of two. One is my Bible, and it's my Bible since I'm 20. And it's a book from the 50s from um, a teacher that was at Penn State University. Uh, His name is Skudrik, and the book is called uh, Fundamental of Acoustics. And everything is there. It's a high level uh, in terms of mathematics and so on, but everything is there it's, uh, you know uh, you're looking at what is diffraction you're looking at uh, what is mutual coupling between drivers very it's really fundamentals it's really a very high theoretical background and uh, so this is this is for acoustics but of course there are books that also uh, helped me greatly uh, in my life you know and uh, eventually uh, shaped me a little bit should i say and uh, one of them is is called land of men from a french novelist named uh, antoine de saint-exupéry he was a, an aviator, he was a poet, he was an inventor. He had an unbelievable life. His writing is about all these experiences worldwide. And it's a pure pure poetry because what he lives is poetry.
0: François, where is the best place for people to follow your work?
1: Uh, uh, one thing is for sure is that if people want to know more about Nexo, we are located uh, 10 minutes away from uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport uh, in Paris. So, not the right time today. And today, of course, Nexo is closed to visitors, although the factory has reopened. But anyway, if for whatever reason you go to Paris, and there are many good reasons to go to Paris, uh, others than Nexo, you know, uh, please contact us. Eventually, uh, we'll organize a visit to the factory because I think meeting the people at Nexo is really a very nice way to. Uh, understand you know who we are and, uh, and what we do that's first point. point second point in the meantime because we are currently uh, under lockdown you can write at uh, technical the address the mail address is technical at nexo.fr awesome
0: well francois thank you so much for joining me today on sound design
1: live thank you very much nathan i really appreciated uh, uh being with you today
0: sound design wow. So a year ago, Steven Pavlik and I launched a short pilot course called Real World RF Troubleshooting, and it went pretty well. Um, I'm going to read to you a couple of the reviews. So Nicholas said, I did the RF troubleshooting course, and even though I've been working with wireless for many years, I now for the first time feel like I'm actually starting to understand how it works, and it's going to be a tremendous help out in the field. And Jonathan says, I was having the hardest time eliminating dropouts and finding enough RF space. I took the class Real World RF Troubleshooting and it taught me to use the tools I already had at my disposal at a higher proficiency and taught me some game-changing tricks. Ever since this class, I've had far fewer RF problems that I couldn't overcome and I'm quite pleased with how much this made my job easier. So, because it did seem to really help people and we had about 30 students go through that pilot course, Steven took the next 10 or 11 months to really refine the content and figure out what wasn't working and what was working really well. And he has come back to launch a full course. So just a few days ago, we have launched this full course over at realworldrftroubleshooting.com. It is 48 self-paced video lessons that cover how to optimize every point of the signal chain. And once you know how to do that, then you'll be much faster at troubleshooting. And I think this course is important because there really is no one resource that covers everything we need to know as live sound engineers to properly deploy and optimize a complete RF system for a small event with a few channels to a large event with potentially hundreds of channels and then you know sharing that space maybe with other people in other nearby rooms or spaces. Now, I know most of us are stuck at home during quarantine right now, but this is really the perfect time to be improving these skills and understanding on a topic that honestly can feel like sorcery sometimes. Plus, I know broadcasts and streaming gigs are still using wireless, even if they're not you know setting up large sound systems. So although I am very much a student on this subject, I'm extremely proud to help bring this course to life since I know it'll help a lot of other sound engineers just like it did for me. And if you sign up by the 30th at midnight, which is next Thursday, you'll get lifetime access to the course for $100 off the normal tuition. That's realworldrftroubleshooting.com and I'll put a link in the show notes to this podcast. This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. The music used in this podcast was called Kosu by an artist named Shock of Daylight. Sound Design Live is supported by Ross, Learn Stage Lighting, John, Scott, Pedro, Rob, Martin, Roadie Free Radio, Joel, Ellis, Jim, Sinqui, Terry, Nicholas, Kuba, Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.